Deuteronomy 10, verse 1 to 22. Um, you can either find it in your Bible, in the Old Testament, or it's actually ri- written up in our um, notice sheets this morning. Um, for those who haven't been with us of late, um, we've actually been going through um, the book of Deuteronomy, and this is where we've got to, um, chapter 10. So let me read this to you, and then Nigel will be coming up to expound it to us. At that time, the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain and also make a wooden ark. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you are to put them in the ark. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before, the Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain, I put the tablets in the ark I had made, as the Lord commanded me, and they are there now. The Israelites travelled from the wells of Ben-Jaken to Mozara. Then Aaron died and was buried, and Eliezer, his son, succeeded him as priest. From there they travelled to Gudgoda and on to Jethbath, a land with streams of water. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister and to pronounce blessings in his name, as they still do today. That is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. Now I had stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights as I did the first time and the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. In the past 25 years, the sociologist uh, noted that there has been a replacement in how we interact with certain people. 
The, the lady who wrote the article said that uh, loyalty has been replaced with a consumer way of relationships. So rather than being loyal to a brand or a shop, what has happened in the last 25 years has been a, a change where loyalty has been replaced by a, a kind of a retail relationship. I will shop at your store, I will eat your food as long as you meet my needs. And if you don't meet my needs, then I'll go elsewhere. If your product is faulty, then I'll get my money back and I'll go and buy elsewhere and I'll never buy from you again. Loyalty has been replaced by a consumer relationship. And the, the author was saying this is a good thing because then it promotes a strong economy and a, a healthy competitiveness. This is a good thing because if uh, McDonald's does not prove its customer service, then you can go to KFC and see if the chicken nuggets really are chicken rather than cat. Uh, and if you uh, like a super dry hoodie, uh, then you can keep buying it there because you know it's better than the Gap hoodie and so on. But what was really interesting, what really caught my interest was when the, the author was saying the issue is this, not just out there, it's not just consumerism about cars and hoodies and food. It's come into how we interact with one another. So it's come not just to affect how we consume products and food. This way of loyalty being replaced by retail or consumerism, it's also shaping our relationships and our culture. So that now, rather than long-standing, deep, lasting, firm-rooted friendships, you have friendships that are based on a consumer mentality. You have friendships that are based on retail priorities. I will be your friend if you meet my needs, but when you cease meeting my needs, I'll go elsewhere. Loyalty has been replaced with you meeting my needs for my goods, and I'm not being too careful or too consumed about your needs. And the, the writer was saying, the thing is, this has been like an atomic bomb in our society because now society is fractured. There are so many lonely people. There is a deep need for friendship. And one of the sources of this is because we have replaced loyalty and covenant with consumerism. Now, I tell you that because that's a lot of what the book of Deuteronomy and that's the complete storyline of the Bible. God is not a God who treats us how we deserve. God is not a God who treats us as a retail product. God, as Deuteronomy has revealed to us again and again, and as the whole Bible testifies, there is not a consumer bone, as it were, in God's body. God is a God of covenant, who makes promises and who keeps them in spite of ourselves. That's what we saw last week in Deuteronomy chapter 9. It's a terrible story that I encourage you to read because it sees and shows our own hearts. We are faith less but God by his grace is faithful we treat God like a consumer God you're there to meet my needs you're there to meet my happiness you're there as, as a resource for me to meet my agenda and when you meet it then that's great and I'll give you time and thought and credence but when you've met my needs I'll move on elsewhere we can treat God like that and that's seen in chapter 9 of the book of Deuteronomy and through much of the Bible but in the first half of chapter 10, we see a new beginning. Did you notice it from verses 1 to 11? We have a new society, could we say, and a new beginning. Look down to verse 1. Moses has another time of testing. Remember that from last week? 40 days and 40 nights. Whenever you see 40 in the Bible, it's a time of testing, whether it's 40 days or 40 years. And it's a bit like a repeat on a DVD screen. It's a bit like a rerun of a goal scored by the mighty AFC Bournemouth at the home of the dastardly Man United yesterday. 
Moses goes up the mountain again, verse 1, and what does he get? He gets the same thing. He gets another two stone tablets, but this time they're put in a safe place. Verse uh, 1 and following, put them in an ark for safekeeping. But also notice verse 6 of chapter 10. Not only is there a new beginning, not only are there new stone tablets, a remaking of the covenant, there's also a new priestly order so that God can be met by a new priestly manner. It's all to do with God's covenant love. God's covenant commitment to his people because God is unshrinking and unswerving in his commitment to his own character. He's not bound to his people because of their needs. He's bound to his covenant character and because of that, he keeps his covenant promises to his covenant people. That's the order and it's very important. But if God is like this, a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, if he's mercy, merciful and gracious, grace upon grace, how do we respond to him? That's the question from verse 12. This is where I want to spend our time today, verse 12 through to verse 22. If God is a God of grace and mercy, if he's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, if God is faithful in light of our faithlessness, verse 12 asks us a question. As Moses says again, hear, O Israel, it's a new beginning, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? You can almost see, imagine his finger being pointed at you, a big kind of foam finger. What does God want of you? If this is who God is, how should we respond to him? Let's look at this under a couple of points. Verse 12, it tells us of our need. It tells us of our deep need. Verses 12 through to verse 16, 17 are some of the most richest uh, Bibles in the whole of the Old Testament. If you look at it in the original language, it's a poetic style. It's, it's highly stylized. It's a kind of exalted language. It's not bold and underscored. This is, this is poetry. One of the writers that I read this week, he says, all the doctrine of the character and nature of God is contained in this passage. If you had nothing else in the whole of the Old Testament and you just had this, you would see enough of God's character to know what he's like. Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 12. And verse 22, they say the same thing. God is the God of the covenant. God is the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. Verse 14 and verse 17 teach us that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all that he's made, all that's seen and all that's unseen. He's, he's the God above all. Verse 18, if God is not just uh, omnipotent, he's not just powerful, he's also close, he's also imminent. And verse 18 shows us that. He's just and he's compassionate. And right in the centre of this uh, exalted, glorious passage, this poetic passage, this passage that reveals so much of God's nature, there's a sentence that I want us to meditate on. Verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. That's a theme from last week that describes our rebelliousness. Before we get serious, I need to tell you a funny story of how a friend of one of the uh, children in our family mistook the word circumcised for circumference. <laughs> Made for a very, very interesting maths lesson, but more of that another time. It does not say circumference your hearts, go around the outside. It says circumcise your hearts. What on earth does that mean? This is hard enough to understand if you've been part of a church family for a decade. It's really, really impenetrable if you're new to Christian things. You think this is bloody, this is dirty, this is weird. It is weird, but it's not dirty. It's very, very significant and important. Let's get into it. 
What does it mean? First of all, what's your heart? You say, I know what the heart means. The heart is the emotional centre and, and the brain, that's the logic. The heart is the, uh, the locus of feelings and the brain is the, the computer. That's not how the Bible describes it. There's no such division. In, in the Bible, the, the heart is the, the seat of the self. It's the acting centre. It's the, the processor of all your emotions, but all your ambitions and dreams and fears as well. That's the heart. It, it controls who you are, your thoughts, your actions. It's, it's the, the locus, it's the place, it's the seat, it's the root, it's the foundation, all those things of your dreams. The things that you hope for, that's you process those in your heart. The things that you believe in, you store them in your heart. The things that you look to, the things that you look forward to, the things that you look for, the things that excites you, the things that captivates your imagination in a hot sweat when you wake up in the middle of the night. All those things are processed in your heart. It's not a mind and a heart thing, it's mind and heart together. It's where you uh, process the things that you find beautiful and attractive. It's your heart. Whatever those things are, whatever those things that affect you, whatever those things that shape you, you process them in the storeroom of your heart. It's the whole of the Hebrew understanding right there. But verse 16, 16 says this strange uh, sentence. If that's what your heart is, your, your processing centre, your real deep-rooted self, you okay here? Yeah? What does it mean to circumcise your heart? What does that mean? I mean, that's, that's strange. Well, circumcision, we know that perhaps from the Old Testament. It's a ritual, a rite of passage that every Jewish male would undergo to, to express their commitment to God's covenant promises. It would signify them physically out from among the nations that surrounded them. It's this removal of a membrane to say nothing is going to get in the way. That kind of stuff. But why does God say you need to remove the membrane of your heart? It's not physical, it's not talking about an operation or a, a gory kind of manipulation. It's a metaphor that God is saying, I want you to remove whatever there is in the way so that you can process by the Spirit of God what I would have you do in my life. I want in your life, I want nothing to get in the barrier, I want nothing to get in the way. I don't just want external obedience. That's the, that's the removal of the membrane. I don't just want an external obedience. I want you to love me from the heart, from your emotional centre. Nothing is in the way. I want a closeness. So it's not just you obeying me because it's the right thing to do. I want you to obey me because you love me. I don't want any division between those two things. Let's just kind of get a little bit more personal here. Spend a minute to think about Spend a minute to think about what actually you love to do. When you've got a free day, what do you love to do? Is it walking? Is it talking? Is it spending? Is it watching? Is it listening? Is it traveling? Is it sweating for some reason? You kind of exercise and you love to do that. What is it that you love to do? Whatever you've just thought about, is it checking your bank account? Is it thinking about retirement planning? pulling out weeds from the garden. Whatever you love to do, wherever your mind has just gone to, think about that thing just for a moment. That's where your heart is, the first thing that came into your mind. Your family, the beach you want to lie on, the golf ball you want to hit. That's where your heart is. It's your, in your deep emotional centre. 
But the Bible says there is something greater that you should be engaged in. Something more worthy, something more important, something more beautiful. Something that will exercise you, not perhaps in physical sweat, but something that will exercise you and produce joy the way exercise really doesn't. And it's God. God is the most beautiful, he's the most worthwhile, he's the most joy-filled, he's the most worthy person to be engaged in when you've got any free waking moments. But here's the thing, we know if we're Christians that we should be worshipping God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, but we don't. We worship something else, we spend our time, we enjoy doing lots of other things, and if we're not careful, then a good thing can become a God thing, a ruling thing. We know what we should be doing, but we don't, we do something else. One of the signs of a circumcised heart, a removal of the membrane of your heart, is the thing that you should be engaged in, the worship and love and enjoyment of God. You know you should be doing that, but the thing you love doing, the walking, the golf ball hitting, the sweating, the eating, the flying, they come together. Duty and delight become married and intertwined. You know that God is the most worthy. You know that he's the most glorious. But sometimes it feels a grind. Your duty and your delight feel completely polarised. But when you receive a new heart, duty and delight come together. And you see God as most lovely and most worthy and most beautiful and most attractive. Your passions get realigned. That's the sign of a circumcised heart. That's what happens when you have a new heart. You think, whoa, this is a huge thing. Sure it is. That's why it's there in the most important passage we could say in the whole of the Old Testament, at least this week, for me. Because the worship of God is the most important thing. Because of who God is and because he's worth it. And if this is so radical, getting a new heart, circumcising your heart, this strange picture, wouldn't that be through the whole of the Bible? Well, it is. There are different words, but you can go to the book called Ezekiel. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. You could go to Jeremiah, and they would say something very similar. They would say, God will one day give you a new heart. It's not just a circumcised heart, but it's a heart with the Spirit of God who comes in and writes his law on your heart. That's there as well, but, well, hang on, that's the Old Testament. Yeah, it's in the New Testament as well. There's a book called John. John, who was a beloved disciple of Jesus, and he met a man in John chapter 3, and he quotes from a book called Ezekiel chapter 37, and he says, you must be born again of the Spirit. And he quotes it again. It's, It's the same thing, to be born again, to receive the Spirit of God in your heart, to circumcise your heart, born of the Spirit. They're all saying the same thing. And that's the solution that we need, because we need a new heart. We do not love God as we should. We cannot love God as he is ought and worthy of our love and affections. And the only way that will happen, says Moses, this is what God requires of you, verse 12. How? You need a new heart, verse 16. You need your heart circumcised. You need anything that's in the way of your worship of God to be removed. And then, verse 12, then you can love him. Then you can obey him. Then you can serve him with your whole heart, then you can fear him because you know who he is. That's our great need. Number two, more quickly, how do you know if you've got it? You say, well, hang on, I've never really experienced what you're talking about. How do you know if you've got a circumcised, a new heart, the spirit living in your heart? Here's how. 
verses 12 to 13. This is like a, a musical chord. There are five notes in the chord. Look down at verses 12 to 13. This is how you know if you've got a new heart, a circumcised heart. Verse 12, you fear the Lord. You walk in his ways. You love him. You serve him. Verse 13, you keep his commandments. Just because of time, I'm going to merge these into three things. Three words I want you to pay attention to. Love, obey, live. Love, obey, live. Here we go, verse 12. It says, if you've got a circumcised heart, if you've had the Spirit of God work in your heart, renewing your emotional center, the core values of everyday life, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to love God first. Verse 12. What does that mean? When someone becomes a Christian... You might think, aha, if only I knew more, then I'd be able to love God more. There's a partial truth there. The more you know of God, the more beautiful you seem to be. But when you become a Christian, it's not when you just get a certain amount of data or knowledge. That is not what it means to become a Christian. It's not a a quantity of religious data. It's It's a quality of spiritual awareness. There's a newness to your experience. There's new taste buds on your tongue. There's a clarity of your sound when you hear the song of God in the world, being a little bit poetic. And all through the Bible, there are these uh, whole body experience words. So people use words like you see and you taste and you smell and you hear because they're describing a new spiritual awareness. It's not a quantity, it's a quality of relationship that you didn't have before, but now you have. So you know your doctrine. You know what the Bible teaches about God and about the world, about how you work, how you try and raise your kids. Uh, how you uh, process the future, how you understand death and suffering. You know what that means, but it's not an end to itself. You don't just know data. You begin to taste it. What do I mean? You begin to see a realness to it. You don't just understand that death is not the end. You begin to really appreciate it, and it affects your life, your everyday experience. It's not just knowledge. It actually sinks down into your heart. There was once a man called Jonathan Edwards, not the triple jumper. There was once a man called Jonathan Edwards before the triple jumper, and he lived in a place called New England. It's a beautiful part of the world that we used to live in. But in the 18th century, he was a pastor in a church. And as he came into the church with with a cultural Christianity where literally everybody was a Christian in the mid-18th century, everybody went to church, and I mean everybody. Everybody was baptised, everybody belonged to their local church. Jonathan Edwards came into a church and he began to see and experience some strange things. He said, I know that everybody in the community comes to church, hundreds of people come to my church, but I'm not sure that they know God. They know about him, they know lots of information, they read their Bibles, they're a card-carrying member of the local church, they come to prayer meetings, they come to church twice on Sundays, not just once on Sunday mornings in the school. They're top-level Christians, but they don't know God's goodness. And Jonathan Edwards wrote four books that I think I can boil down to about two sentences. Four books that he wrote as he understood more the spiritual landscape and colours and uh, sounds of the community in which he lived in New Hampshire. He said, here's the difference between Christians who who just come to church on Sundays, Christians who are members, Christians who have been baptised, but they still don't know the goodness and grace and loveliness and beauty of God. Here's the difference between Christians who just come and bums on seats and it makes no difference. Sunday makes no difference to Monday. But then there are other Christians who've had their lives transformed from the inside out. 
Here we go. Not four books, two sentences. People with a new heart love and obey God for the beauty and attractiveness of who he is in himself. They don't love and obey God because they have to. They don't love and obey God to get things. They don't love and obey God as a means to an end, to get stuff. They obey God because they love him as an end in and of himself. That's the difference. You don't obey and love God, says Moses, to get stuff from God. You obey and love God because of who he is. And when you see that, when you experience that, that is a sign that you've got a new heart. The Spirit of God is dwelling within you. You don't come to church because you have to. You don't come to church because you just want to get another religious tick on the roster. You don't come to church because there's suffering in your life and you want God to fix it. He's not a genie in the lamp. You come to church because you want to worship the God who you love, who's given you a new heart, who died for you. You don't come to church just at Christmas and Easter, hatch, match and dispatched, so to speak. You come to church because you love him, because he first loved you. And on the cross, he showed you the full extent of his love. A person who has a circumcised heart, a new heart, the Spirit of God dwelling in them, they love and obey God not to get stuff. They love him because he is lovely. They obey him because he is beautiful. They adore him because he's the definition of what it means to be adorable. Even more than a newborn baby. When you see God for who he is, when you taste and see his goodness, you don't come to him to be forgiven again. You don't come to him because you want to get a blessing. You don't come to him because you want to get into heaven because of how good you are. You worship him because he's altogether lovely. That's what the psalmist says. And as a result, people with a new heart says Jonathan Edwards, they may have been to church for years, but at a certain point in time, when the Spirit of God renews them like they did for hundreds of people in Jonathan Edwards' congregation over a very short period of time, here's the difference that happens. You don't just experience God as beautiful and lovely. These doctrines that you knew as data, they start to become real to you. They start to change your life. They start to reshape how you think. Here's a few examples, verse 12 and verse 20. You do no longer do you fear God because of his wrath, or wrath, as American friends would say. That's not why you fear God, verses 12 and verse 20 of this passage. When the Spirit of God comes into your heart, when you know something of the power of God, when you know his character, you move from fear and trembling to love and adoration. You move to admire and respect. There's an awe-filled, loving reverence, not a knee-knocking fear. You see the love of God, and before you just knew about it, but now you see it. You hear the promises of God, and they resonate with you, rather than just hearing them on a surface level, so they're information that you can trip off your tongue. Now, all of that was love. The other two are really quick. Live and obey. Here's live. Look at verse 12. Here's another sign that you've got a new heart. You, you love God, but then you live. Look at verse 12. You, you walk in his ways. This is Psalm 1 stuff. You can spot a man or a woman or a boy and a girl who have a new heart because they have a passion to walk in the ways of God. They don't want to disobey God. They come under the conviction of sin. They become really um, upset and want to know how they can get right with God when they've done something wrong. You start to walk in his ways. You want to please your maker. You want to please the one who saved you. Verse 19, it's not just you personally. 
When you start to understand the love of God, it changes how you walk, verse 19, it changes how you view people in society. Did you notice that? You start to treat outsiders and the needy in a very, very different way. The justice of God is seen in justice that you want to see on behalf of other people. You care. Let me ask you a direct question. Do friends who've known you for a while, if you're a Christian here this morning, can they see any difference in your life? Do they see a new generosity of spirit? And I mean financially, and I mean time, and I mean energy. An open door in your home. With boundaries, of course, but is there a generosity of spirit in your heart because God's love has been poured into your heart and it's changed you? Do they see a man or a woman who's self-controlled? Do they see a man or a woman who is courageous? When they see inequality, they get involved, they get their hands dirty. They don't have to be told. People who have the love of God, who are living for him, who are walking in his ways, they don't have to be told where to get engaged in, where to get involved in. They roll up their sleeves and they just get in there because they have a passion to make God's love known. Knowing God's love changes how you live. You walk in his ways and you look at the needs of outsiders, those who are marginalised, those who are helpless. You want to help them. Look at the third thing. You, you love God, you live for God, and then you obey God. Verse 13, you obey his commandments. Stubborn hearts, verse 16, become tender and they become obedient hearts. It's the whole point of the passage. How and where is the source of obedience? Is it external stuff that you've just got to do more? You've got to change your clothes more often, you've got to change your behaviour? No. The change, as we've seen again and again, is always from the inside out. We need a new heart. It's our greatest need. You don't obey to get a changed heart. Obedience is the result of a changed, renewed spirit from the, from the inside out. It's a gift of grace, and it's a sign of God at work in your heart. That's our great need, and that's how you can tell if those things are starting to happen in your life, or if you can see them in the life of someone that you live with. It's the power of God with a circumcised heart. Yeah, but what if you don't have it? That's the third point. What if you don't have it? How would you get this new heart? It looks like from, a, from verse 16, it's something you do yourself without getting bloody and gross. Circumcision is not the kind of thing you do yourself, guys. You need someone else to circumcise you. There's going to be a table at the back. No, only kidding. Um, <laughs> circumcision is not something that you can do yourself. In chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, you'll see that although Moses is saying here, you need to circumcise your heart, you need to remove whatever there is, this membrane that's, or these practices or habits, it looks like it's something you do yourself, but it's not. Deuteronomy 30 that we'll be at in a very few weeks' time says actually this is something that God and God alone can do. It says in Deuteronomy 30 that God will circumcise your heart. Now what does that mean that this kind of bloody image, where does Moses get this data from? I think it's Genesis 15. In Genesis 15 you know is a very familiar passage where, where God causes uh, Abraham to fall into an Adam-like deep sleep, something like I enjoy most nights. No one can wake me other than it's my wife with an elbow to the ribs or the return of the Lord Jesus. I am dead asleep. Abraham, the father of Israel, he was dead asleep because God put him into a spiritually deep sleep and then he saw in his mind's eye it was real to him it was a spiritual revelation, a spiritual drawing back of the curtains. He saw these animals that had been cut in two, and there was a corridor that he could walk down, like the middle of these chairs. But what was so unique was who walked through the pieces. This is, this is how a covenant was made. 
a practice of a big king speaking to a little king to say, we're going to have an agreement, says the big king to the little king, and little king, you walk through. And if you break the conditions of the covenant, well, you're going to become just like the parts of these animals, so you better toe the line. But in Abraham's dream, he didn't walk through the pieces, God did. God, this smoking firepot, is imagery of the character and nature of the majesty and holiness of God. He went through the pieces. And God Almighty is saying to Abraham, I will keep my covenant with you. You can bet your life on it. More than that, I will give my life for it. But how would that happen? God is saying, if I go back on the conditions of my covenant, may I be cut off. May I be cut apart. I promise you, on my honour, says God, that this will come true. You will be the father of many nations. You will have a land. You'll be protected. You'll be blessed. I'm going to make a name for you, Abraham, so that no one will ever forget you. It's all banked on God's character and in his glorious plans and purposes for his people. But how is God going to do that? He's going to do it by becoming cut off. We've said in some of the parenting uh, evenings that we're currently coming to the end of tonight, one of the things as parents is really important to be... Um, rightly uh, determined to kind of combat in your life and in the kid's life is lying. When you lie, it breeds distrust. When you lie, it cuts you off from other people. Same when you cheat. When you cheat, whether you're Bradley Wiggins or not, and it's all a bit controversial at the minute, when you cheat, when there is a jiffy bag that goes over the mountains with a strange substance so that certain people can win races, whether they do or not, I'm not sure. When you lie, it cuts you off from people. When you cheat as well, it isolates you. No one wants to cycle with you anymore. No one wants to befriend you anymore if you cheat at anything. When God went through those pieces, in Abraham's mind eye, there is a forerunning, a foreshadowing, an echo of the reality of the cross. The punishment for sin is banishment, it's exile, it's being cut off. And thousands of years later, God again was cut off on the cross. Jesus Christ receiving the punishment for your sin and my sin. He was cut off the way circumcision happens. He was exiled. He was cut off from the people. He was cut off from his own homeland, as it were, from his country of heaven. He was cut off from God himself. So that's what circumcision uh, really represents. It's the thing that we ought to experience, but we don't. How did God give us a new heart? How does he make that possible? Because Jesus was cut off on the cross. What do I mean by that? He was cut off with blood pouring down from his brow as thorns were plunged into his skull. He was cut, literally, as a spear cut his side. He was cut off with nails in his hands. And he was cut off from his father, alienated and exiled from him as he cried out, according to the book of Isaiah, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? God the Father is cutting off his son. He's cutting off his son. He's pierced for our transgression, says Isaiah chapter 53. 800 years before it happened, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserved was upon him. His death brought us peace. He was cut off for our sake. It's a cosmic cutting off, not a physical one. It's a sign that circumcision represents this cosmic cutting off of God, cutting off of his son from the Father. It's the circumcision of judgment. So that every time a man would remember this, he's being cut off from us, he's getting the penalty that we deserve. Remember right the way back in the first few chapters of the Bible? 
Adam and Eve, they were cut off with, with an angel with a flaming sword at the, the, uh, the doorway and the entranceway to the Garden of Eden. They were cut off. It's a sign of exile and of banishment. But on the cross, not the sword of an angel, but the sword of God, so to speak, came down on his son. He was cut off for us. He's cut off for us now so that we can go in to God's presence. Adam and Eve were exiled. They were sent out because of their rebellion. But because Jesus was cut off with the sword of God's judgment, we can now go into his presence through the grace and mercy of his Son. Now, when you think about that, Jesus dying for you, Jesus dying in your place, Jesus receiving the punishment that you and I deserve, if that moves you, but you don't change, that's just like a shuddering. But if you see the action of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that's beginning to move your spirit, and you understand it in a deep and lasting way, that's a sign that God is at work in your heart. It's not just an emotional experience. You're not just saying, God, give me a new heart because I have problems and unresolved issues in my life. But if you see Jesus Christ dying for you, if you see Jesus being cut off for you, if you begin to experience his grace and love and mercy in your life, then that is a sign that God is at work in your life. It moves from being a story to being real to you. And that and that alone, that's what makes pleasure and duty one. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you, you see the beauty of it amidst the blood. You see the reality of it amidst, amidst the historicity of it. When you see Jesus dying for you in your place, and it's not just a fairy story, it's true, that's the difference that makes duty and delight one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of the cross. Please, would our service of you never just be dutiful, but it would be a delight. Please, would that increasingly be my experience and the experience of my friends here? And Father, help us to see the fact that Jesus got cut off for us, not just as a historical action outside the city gates of Jerusalem. But please, may we continually see, even for the first time, that Jesus died for me, he died for us. And Father, as that begins to move us afresh, I pray, please, that we would have a renewed love for you, that we would live for you in a renewed, vibrant way, and we would obey you because of the God of who you are. Please help us, we pray. Amen.